radical encounter. Radical encounter. Radical encounter. <laughs> Welcome to Radical Encounter, a series of casual conversations about serious resistance. This show is hosted by me, Sofia Varino, a social researcher and activist living in Berlin. And by me, Patricia Silva, a visual artist and writer based in New York City. Hello, this is Sophie in Berlin, and today's encounter is with Margaret Schildrick. I interviewed Margaret Schildrick in June 2015 during a conference on posthumanism at the University of Geneva. She was giving a keynote on immune politics and I was presenting on environmental justice. Schildrick is professor of gender and knowledge production at Linköping University in Sweden and a key theorist of disability. Her work on feminist, posthuman ethics, and embodied difference has been crucial for my own research on bodies and illness. Schildrick is the author of several books, including Embodying the Monster and of Dangerous Discourses of Disability, Subjectivity, and Sexuality, as well as many articles in the fields of medicine and philosophy. It was an honor and a pleasure to speak with her about her research and activism while we sat on a bench in the Parc des Bastions in Geneva during a hot summer afternoon to discuss the role of radical politics and post-structuralist thought in her practice as a philosopher of the body. Okay, so we just did a workshop on different methods, different strategies mm -hmm. for knowledge production. We talked about witnessing, recognition, um, responsibility, And what I would like um, to know more about is how can we apply it? How can we do mm -hmm. it in our daily lives as, as academics, as researchers? Right. Uh, and also in our daily encounters with, with others as we are learning about what's happening in our neighborhoods, in our mm -hmm. communities, in our schools. How can we apply it? How can we have more strategies for yeah. doing this? Yeah, um, I think the, the obvious answer is to apply self-critique. And it's not to stop doing the things we normally do, which mm. get us through the day-to-day -day problems. So, you know, the kind of ethical problems that you encounter all the time, sometimes there's no time to do anything other than apply a pre-given rule. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this is a further stage of self-critique. It's to say, what's the limitations? Of simply staying with the rules so one is doing both things at the same time you're not saying the rules aren't going to work anymore you're saying we have to have an ongoing critique and the critique is of yourself of the rules of the very idea that there would be this predetermined path that you just follow so it doesn't say stop doing everyday stuff it doesn't it doesn't disallow the the kind of everyday encounters that cause you to think well how should I react here what would be the best thing to do these are just normal questions and sometimes you you will simply think well what have I done in the past you know what what kind of things do people expect in these situations are there any particular principles I ought to follow this is all fine as long as we're aware through critique that this has limitations, that it's not an absolute answer, and that there is always something else we could be doing. That once we critique, we've opened up a whole different um, register of ways of thinking about those encounters ethically. So basically your, your, your strategies, self-critique, self-awareness, 
to, to keep. Um, and not just self-critique, I mean it's critique of all the rules, um, all, all the production of knowledge that we've grown up with under Western modernism, which tell us we're quite sure about these things, you know, here are the rules we should follow, I mean they might be Kantian deontology, they might be utilitarian, you know, it might be virtue ethics that you base your life on, you know, these are things we, we've grown up with, so we're critiquing ourselves um, as ethical agents, but we're also critiquing the kind of knowledge that we've taken for granted that tells us how we should react. Related to that, one of your areas of research is uh, disability studies, mm. creep theory, and I always have in my mind is, um, I'm quoting someone, I, I can't remember the name right now, but mm. it's not so important. Um, the world is a disabling place. Right. Rather, yeah. rather than all these different kinds of abilities, disabilities, the world is a, a, a disabling place. Yes. How can we use some of the strategies you, you just named, and perhaps others, to create a more abling environment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for ourselves and for others, so to sort of yeah. open up the yeah. world a little bit? Well, the classic answer within disability studies would be um, to apply the rules and principles of um, equality. So you would say, if the world is a disabling place, which is you know, classically accepted as a social model of disability, it's not the impaired body that causes the disability, it's the world's reaction to the impaired body, then the answer is, if only we would apply equality, which is of course a major trope of Western modernism, if we make sure that people with disabilities have their rights, all will be well. Now that to me is a completely inadequate answer. And again, I'd stress I'm not saying people with disabilities shouldn't fight for their rights and that allies, I count myself as an ally, shouldn't fight alongside people with disabilities for rights. That's not the issue. The issue again goes back to critique, which is how far do rights really take us? Now, in my view, the rights can change the surface of things. They can put in place um, opportunities for employment. They can put in place different forms of mobility, they can put in place listening strategies that take into account people's communication difficulties. All these things can be done in the name of rights. What can't be done is you can't change the social imaginary very, very easily through rights. And the oppression, the real oppression that I think doesn't get changed is the fear of disabled people as somehow monstrous or abject other than myself, those strangers, those aliens. And that's a matter of how are people actually thinking about disability? What kind of fears and anxieties does disability generate that makes people want to push it away, makes people want to object it, disallow it, disavow it? And that is never going to be solved by giving people rights mm -hmm. or saying, you know, this is an issue of equality. So it goes much further. And that, to me, is, again, a matter of critique. It doesn't stop you doing the more surface stuff. It simply says we must have a critique, and the critique is never going to end. There isn't going to be an answer along the line. You make it better, but you know new issues arise new layers arrive, like I was talking about, you know, peeling the onion. That will always go on. You never I, get to the core. You never get to the core because there isn't a core. There isn't a core. Yeah. 
So in uh, phenomenology and in, in other schools of thought, we have always a standard of a normal, healthy, mm -hmm. vital, more or less capable body. Yes. How can we begin to, to verbalize, to account for all the different possibilities of bodies, so monstrous mm, bodies, mm, abject mm, bodies, mm. disabled bodies. How can we begin to formulate, perhaps create a different lexicon okay. around mm. the body that completely moves away these notions of the standard healthy body? Sure, sure. Um, I always think of it in terms of an exercise of thinking differently because what we're effectively trying to do is this massive task of changing the social imaginary. So the social imaginary tells us that we have two arms, two legs, we have sight, we have hearing and we're mobile. Um, this is the social imaginary that we take to be normal and therefore is normative. Now what we're trying to do in, in a sense is create a different kind of social imaginary and I think interestingly, I mean that's a huge task, but interestingly it's greatly helped by technology bringing into play all sorts of new prosthetic devices that become normalised themselves, which is both good and bad, there's always a problem with normalisation, but it puts on the agenda that having no legs doesn't mean you can't be a sprinter. Um, you know, it, it puts on the agenda things like, um, you know, you can communicate through different modes you don't, you don't have to be silenced if you can't hear or you can't speak like the majority. And the technologies themselves are accelerating so much. The ways in which they augment bodies and supplement bodies, I mean, it's both positive and negative, but there's some very, very clear changes going on which are accelerating, which makes the change in the social imaginary more possible, because you can talk about prosthetics, it's something material, people understand this idea. And perhaps um, also more and more of us are using some sort of prosthetic of device, like we are right now. Absolutely, we're talking into a microphone, yeah. we're both wearing sunglasses, um, you have your laptop open on your lap, so your mode of communication is nothing like your mother's mode of communication, um, let alone your grandmother. Um, if you were somebody with a disability where communication were the major issue for you, um, let's say you can't speak as the majority do, then this is a mode of communication that would be available very, very easily. And people just take that for granted now. So I think there's already a way in which the social imaginary doesn't necessarily have to see the absence of a particular bodily feature in that very classical conventional social imaginary two arms two legs and so on as being a failure it can simply say this is a difference and once you can get people thinking about bodies as different and ultimately endlessly different then you're beginning to crack how you might change a social imaginary and I, I think technology is hugely helpful at the moment just in doing that because we see bodies doing things that we couldn't have imagined ourselves but more to the point sometimes doing them much much better you know um, if you've ever attended a marathon race for example you know that the people in wheelchairs come in first because a wheelchair is so much more efficient as a racer than legs are now nobody finds that unusual anymore. You no, know, this it, is just it's normal. Sort of taken for granted. Yeah, absolutely, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think you know there are ways of changing the, the social imaginary that, that are tied up with real material changes in our world in the 21st century. But the other thing is we have to think differently, which is where the critique comes in. We have to be aware of the limitations of things. 
we have to be aware of the erasure of differences that we all do. None of us are innocent about this. That we have to have this constant critique of the boundaries, the limits, the impossibilities in order to open up how you can think differently. Once you have thought differently, then you can do differently. If you haven't thought it, nobody is going to do a policy change if it hasn't been thought about differently in the first place. So, you know, I think changing the social imaginary sounds like this massive task, but actually there are little ways in. Hmm. Using technology yeah. is one of those ways. One of them, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We hope that you'll join us next week. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Rad Encounter. That's R-A-D Encounter. Radical Encounter is a digital humanities project by The Open. Our theme song was composed by DJ Tika Masala.